Welcome to our summer series. We have created a series to talk about the different institutions that uphold racism and the radical ways in which folks are making change happen. For our first episode, we're talking with Aminta and Nora, who are current medical student activists in the UC Berkeley UCSF Joint Medical Program. In this episode, we talk about their dedication to creating change in medicine as medical student activists, particularly what led them to this work, how they do this while being full-time graduate and medical students, and how they became part of the founding team for the Institute for Healing and Justice in Medicine. We also highlight the importance of Toward the Abolition of Biological Race in Medicine, Transforming Clinical Education, Research, and Practice, a report written by Norm, Bernie, and two other JMP medical students, Maddie and Brenly. We hope that this episode shows the role that students can take in creating institutional change and how they don't have to wait for that degree. Showing up as yourself with a vision for a better, more just future is enough. So stay woke and thanks for listening. We hope you all enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. So happy to be here with you all doing our first episode of our summer series. Oh, we are back in the studio. Um, This is amazing. Really happy to be here. Our check-in question for today, because you know we have to do our check-in questions, uh, is what is one thing you have learned about yourself in quarantine? Then a little bonus question, what is an area that you're hoping to grow? Um, So I'll go first. One thing I learned about myself during quarantine is that I really can do whatever I put my mind to. Like, I've really just been telling myself, you know, you're going to learn to do this. You're going to try to do that. You're going to create this. And I just just immediately come up with plans and started executing them. And I feel like, I don't know, I didn't think that, I just never saw myself as doing things like that and sort of coming up with these things and creating them and actually making them come to fruition. But I've been doing a lot of that. So I'm feeling very, very powerful. And what areas am I hoping to grow more? Um, I think I've also learned more how to rest during quarantine. And I'm hoping to learn more about resting and like just like giving my body and soul that space to just take that take the time that it needs i saw something say like your ancestors didn't work as hard as they did for you to like work like this voluntarily like to Mm. work your butt off voluntarily so i was like oop, you're right let Mm. me sit my booty down and just relax because they were not working like that for me to also stress right so that is my long answer to the second question. And I'm gonna pass it off to Miss Bernadette Bernie. <laughs> Thank you, EVA. Um, it's great to be back in the studio, AKA Zoom. What's happening? Hopefully this <laughs> recording um, is, is gonna be dope and worthy. Of course it is. Um, but we're just excited to see the transitions as, as COVID. I mean, y'all have really heard from the very beginning when we were first recording in March that things have completely evolved. And so we're still here, we're still fighting and we're still resting. Um, One thing I've learned about myself in quarantine um, is um, allowing myself to be in solitude and and really enjoying that. I think um, I remember in the beginning of quarantine, I felt so anxious in terms of like what's on my to-do list nothing that must be wrong like I must be doing something wrong and then I realized as I was processing it and all these feelings of anxiety or 
feeling that I'm not doing enough would come up, I realized that that's a trauma response to these systems that have demanded so much of us that like it became unconscious and it became um, just something I wasn't aware that was going through my mind. And so as I've been sitting more, I realized that I require a lot of solitude actually to bring my best version of myself. And um, this goes into the area I'm hoping to grow more, but um, we actually started going back to the ward. And so I had a week in medicine inpatient after three months of which I really just like made myself a priority. And I can't tell you how much that made a difference for me on the wards. Like I had such an amazing time for that one week on the wards. Like usually if people know me, like I would have hated inpatient, but I really had such a great time caring for patients, being present. I saw so much in terms of people passing the number of COVID cases come up, but I was able to um, really bring a presence and awareness and um, yeah, and just uh, a calmness in the midst of a very chaotic hospital environment. And so I'm just grateful that I was able to really honor that time rather than um, letting that, letting those traumas really still exist in the subconscious. So now they're aware and now it's just um, something I hope to continually exercise because we're coming back to the wards and I don't know if I'm gonna become a hospitalist, but we'll see. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm gonna pass. I love how excited you get about things, Bernie, because like after you finished surgery, you were like, I might become a surgeon. And then, you know, you finish hospital medicine, you're like, I might become a hospitalist. But it brings me so much joy to see you excelling and like doing well and it bringing you joy. And then you seeing yourself in that, like just being able to envision that, I think that's really cool. So I'm happy for you. Thank you. I can only do a week though. I'm gonna make that clear. That's my threshold for inpatient medicine. Like after that week, I was I don't know how most med students do it for two months. Interns do it for a month at a time. Um, yeah, no, like that's hard. Anyway, I was gonna say res residency is gonna be a whoop, slap in the face. Well, we all know my reaction to that. Anyway, <laughs> um, I'm gonna pass it off to Nicole. So, um, hi everyone. Wait, hold on. <laughs> all right. Hi everyone, it's been so long. It's so nice to be back on um, and sharing community with you all. Um, so the check-in question, what's one thing you've learned about yourself in quarantine? And that one thing is that I am worthy of my trust. Um, yeah, I think that was a hard lesson to learn, to kind of trust the process and trust um, what's guiding me to go to different directions. And I really have like grown to trust myself so much more during quarantine. And it's helped so much with the ups and downs and like the uncertainty that, you know, we're all living in now. Um, and the area that I hope to grow more in is um, self-compassion. I think um, we're all really precious and amazing and beautiful individuals. And I don't treat myself like that. I have a lot of stories programmed into me by society that tell me different things about myself that aren't those things. And so it's listening to the stories and deciding that I don't want to believe those things anymore about myself. So in the morning, saying nice, sweet things to myself. And in the evenings, ending the day with really beautiful quotes that really inspire me. And then during the day, just continuously checking in and seeing how I'm doing and um, how I can give myself more love. Because it's hard, you know, it's hard to go through all of this that we're going through. 
Um, and so treating myself in, that, in those loving ways is what I'm hoping to grow more in as I move forward. Um, and so the next person that we have here, one of our special guests, I'm going to ask Aminta to check in with us first. Hi, thanks y'all for having me. This is such an honor. Um, I've been listening to y'all for a long time and now I'm like, I am a, on my path to be a woke, woke doc. So that's super dope. Um, I think um, for the check-in question, I've learned a lot about myself in this quarantine. I think um, I've learned that I, like Issa Rae, like to talk to myself in the mirror. And I have some really great revelations uh, when I do that. And like today, I think my revelation was um, I'm not as flexible as I think that I am in many ways. So I'm learning all about yoga. I'm learning about um, letting my mind be open and free to possibilities um, for new adventures and new things and also changing my own mindset about things that I thought that I believed and then realizing that actually things might be a little bit different if I looked at it a different way. And so um, I'm learning that I'm a much more patient person than I give myself credit for. Um, I'm growing a garden and it's been a beautiful project. I have zucchinis coming in and I'm like watching my little babies grow and that's just like a really beautiful healing process for myself. Um, and I'm also learning the importance of like evening rituals. Like we're on a podcast, but I'm doing one right now where I light a candle and burn some Palo Santo to kind of like signify the end of like a working day, but the opening to like joy for my evening. So yeah, that is kind of some of the things that I've learned about myself. And I hope to keep learning um, more about how I want to be and what kind of person I want to be as I show up for um, different relationships in this quarantine when we're transitioning for who knows how long we're going to be on this Zoom university and Zoom friendship thing, um, trying to figure out how uh, I want to show up first up. And also learning how to say no to things because uh, I don't do that very well. But I'm super happy to be here and I will pass it on to Noor. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited. I'm also really nervous, but um, as I said, also really excited. Um, I love Woke Woke Docs and all of you, and it's an honor to be here. Um, for the checking question, what is one thing I've learned about myself in quarantine? I think something I learned like just super early on is just how much like my body needs to move and like take breaks and stuff. And I I I always say that I identify as a dancer. I, I do Bhangra um, and love that. And so that's something I should have known already, but I like, you know, really started scheduling myself back to back Zoom meetings and you go through several hours staring at a screen and like suddenly I'd have um, like major headaches that I for some reason didn't anticipate. And so just like knowing that I need to get outside and like give myself breaks and um, like move my body is something I've been learning. Um, and is also something it also relates to the second question of areas i'm trying to grow more because i on those days where i totally overbooked myself and um, would leave the day with like quote unquote zoom fatigue then i realize that if i'm doing that now over the summer when i don't even have a full class schedule then there's no way that i will be taking care of myself going into the fall and so just like trying to be better at that and um, so I started a new morning routine. It's really simple so far, but it includes drinking a glass of water and doing some skincare and then doing like five minutes of yoga. Um, inspired by Bernie, I actually also started a yoga teacher training through this cool org called Black Yoga Magazine. 
And then because I started doing yoga, I'm try- I can't believe I'm putting this on a podcast because I might not be able to succeed, but I'm trying to learn how to do headstands. And just last week, I finally got both knees in the air at the same time, and I can't hold it for very long, but that's huge progress for me. And so that's like a literal space of growth is like turning my body upside down. Um, yeah, trying to, trying to do that, that kind of thing and just continue to, I think a few of us mentioned it, just like practice rest and practice like caring for myself and continuing that practice as life like continues to get busier and as I like continue to do the things that I want to do in my life. Literally, this is like such a theme for all of us, it seems like, like being compassionate to ourselves, resting, creating these routines, saying these affirmations, taking the time to say like, this is like when I'm done with my work and this is what I'm going to focus on myself. And I just think it's so beautiful that we're all, you know, we all have our different little things that we're doing, but we're all growing in such um, unique ways that are just so intrinsic to just our own like health and well-being. So I'm really happy that the past four months, we've all really had this chance to grow like this, like individually, but, you know, I feel like quarantine's really made people put things into perspective and get their acts together and prioritize their own health because, woo child, we don't know how long we're going to have it for. You know what I mean? Like, we got to protect it while we've got it. So that's just dope. I'm really happy to hear that from all of y'all. And um, yeah, I think since we have these two amazing special guests here who both have done work, um, well, I guess we're all medical students, so we all know each other, but they've done some great activism work. There's a whole report that's been written that they can speak to. So I don't even know where to begin, y'all. Thoughts, Bernie, like where should we start with you guys? There is this really cool report that I feel like you all should talk about. Yes. I do like the the suggestion of maybe starting out with um, Nora and Amita talking about influences um, that have really inspired y'all to really be, I mean, y'all are leaders in terms of medicine and how the field is changing. Who are the people that have been critical to, to opening your minds and just like really um, discovering new ways of which we can really imagine this practice to be more healing and just for our people. I mean, to you can go first and then no. Um, yeah, I think that's a great question and one that like there's so many y'all have five hours um, to list all the amazing people. I think um, it's been really cool because like I'm a year behind Noor in the joint medical program, two years behind Bernie a couple, and um, Nicole and EVA. And I think um, y'all, like I look up to y'all as like a medical student and like figuring out like my own activism and like I'm... I was actually really scared coming to medical school that I was going to have to change so much of myself and become this like performative puppet for like this institution. And then I came to medical school and got totally radicalized, which is super dope. Um, I think the student activists, like, you know, we're talking like SNCC, um, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, the civil rights um, work that they did on maintaining ethnic studies at Third World Liberation Front at Berkeley, um audrey lord like her essay um on uses of anger is something that i come back to many 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 times um both in figuring out how to be a medical student and how to be an activist and how those two things are actually inseparable for me 
um, I think about my family um, coming from a history and a legacy of like women who did the thing and like they made sure that everybody knew that they were going to do the thing and then they did the thing. Um, and I think trying to figure out like other, like being connected with other med students, Twitter has been actually super helpful. Like we all know Lash Nolan cause she's like at Harvard doing big things and like is med Twitter famous shout out, please follow me back. Um, but she's, um, that was very thirsty, but I did it. Um, and like seeing just like the different med students on Twitter, like getting, um, petition signed and like all the work, the amazing work that people are doing to about the San Quentin outbreak, nor I see you post and stuff. And I think figuring out like learning how to be a medical student activist is a little bit different than like the work that I did coming into medical school. Um, and then realizing that like with the privilege of a white coat, even if I only wear it to go to protests, never actually worn it in preceptorship, it still offers an opportunity for like my voice to be heard, but also to open the door and drag everybody else in with me. So um, that's kind of my ramble on who's inspired me and why I do what I do. Noor? Yeah, no, I really love the question and also super agree with your answer, Aminta. You mentioned me posting about the San Quentin outbreak. I'm pretty sure I posted about it because I heard about it from you. And so like literally the like inspiration totally goes back and forth, I think. And like, thanks for saying that. Um, like, yeah. And also if we're going to talk about inspiration for this work I as I mean I said also we can go like we can talk about maybe what inspired us to be passionate about just in the first place and then we can talk about like so many things but talking maybe specifically about um like the report and student activism in medicine and my involvement in it it really was um in the in the joint medical program when one of the first classes or seminars that we uh, take is with this awesome professor named Osagi Obasogi, and he really like explicitly laid out the history of eugenics in medicine. And then, like very quickly thereafter, we would learn about um, race-based medicine and things in our like, medical curriculum that were. It, it just became like the Osagi laid for laid out for us the the history of racism in medicine and it became very clear the legacy that we are currently upholding in medicine and then in our curriculum witness the manifestations of racism in current medical practice and it sort of like once I uh, like I remember it was somewhere in the first few months of starting at the JMP like a few of us like had a meeting I think maybe it was Bernie who brought us together and had this idea of like we need to write this report and I don't remember exactly the progression of when we like what happened when, but it just became, it wasn't something, it was just something that had to be done, like given, I don't know if that makes sense, like just get, given the, like once you know about the legacy of racism in medicine and like know that that is what you are upholding, like I just have to like do something about it. And like for me, this was a part of my action. So like Osagi, some one person I credit, and then also like watching and reading Dorothy Roberts, like as soon as I watch her TED talk, there's just like no question that if someone else doesn't know about it that, and they are in medicine that they must listen to her. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's not something that is even a question. Like these are the people who have done this work and it's just so horrendous that 
they've been doing this work for so long and yet this is where we are. And so, yeah, naming a few people like Osagi, I mentioned Dorothy Roberts. Also, oh, Aminta and I took this awesome class with this professor at Berkeley called Nikki Jones, who I'll say for her, Aminta too, we both adore. She's amazing. And like, it's just been so cool to, and so basically she, I mean, I will do a very broad summary of her class, but one thing that I took away from it is learning about um, black feminist epistemology and just like being able to apply that perspective as I learn medicine um, has been amazing and just like yeah also really radical um yeah so those are a few people and um, there's like so many more oh another person maybe I'll shout out is um Tina Sachs because she was someone that we I specifically had a conversation with and we'd actually like in writing the report itself like received several comments that were basically tone policing and like telling us that we need to write a message in a certain way in order for it to get across in medicine. And Tina Sachs was someone who told us to just be bold and like not to, um, not to like soften our voice. And she's someone who's done a lot of awesome work relating to um, health justice as well. And so those are a few people to shout out, but there's like so many more. Um, yeah, we'll leave it at that. Noor, you mentioned um, race-based medicine, and obviously the report is all about abolishing biological race and race-based medicine, and I was just hoping you could elaborate a little bit more on what that is for some of our listeners who may not be familiar. I think a lot of people do already understand, but I think it's just nice for us to all have that same foundation. So if you don't mind talking just a little bit about like what race-based medicine is and like why y'all felt the need to like write this long but amazing report, like <laughs> trying to abolish it. Yeah, maybe I can I can start and then I didn't like kind of preparing something. So maybe please feel free to jump in um, and like correct me if I slip up or um, don't mention everything. Yeah, Bernie, but, you can jump in too. Yeah, but like basically like where, where we start is that uh, racism, not race, causes health disparities. That's, that's one statement that we need to make. And so in making that statement, um, it's important to note that race is a social and political construct and not something that's biologically based. And that is something that has been proven again and again, both by, by a lot of interdisciplinary people. So like including sociologists and including biomedical researchers and including geneticists, just to name a few different disciplines that have proven that again and again. And like, just to explicitly name some of the reasons, one is that like race, the, the social and political category of race, um, no, no single, um, no single like race category can encompass the um, like breadth of human genetic diversity. And, and the reason that's important to say is because that's, that's like sort of the argument that people will pose for saying that like race is biological. They will say that, oh, but there must be a set of like genetic traits that um, belong to a given, given race. And that has just like been repeatedly proven not, not to be true. Um, and despite the fact that that's been repeatedly proven, the uh throughout medicine race and racial categories are used as like quote unquote risk factors for disease and that's something we're taught over and over and over again in different like different diseases so including like kidney disease and including lung disease and heart disease just to name a few and what that does is um pathologize people for their race, um, when in fact racism is the cause of health disparities. And another like response when I say that, that some people may say is like, oh, well, 
actually that's since health disparities do exist um, and they do map onto like different races do experience different health disparities then actually this category is just um, is just being used to um, talk about racism and address racism but we we know that the cat using race as a biological category is harmful because it leads to um, it leads to different care for different patients. And one of the most like explicit examples that I think is really powerful to understand is this study that came out in, I think 2016, that surveyed medical students. Um, I don't know exactly, I think it was nationally representative, I'm not exactly sure. And showed that like, I think like 60% of current medical students still think that um, black patients have different um, thresholds for experiencing pain than other patients and then uh, specifically other than white patients and like that then leads to pay to doctors and medical students um who then become doctors prescribing like pain medication differently to patients simply based on their race and like so that's just like one explicit example of how harmful these categories are when we when we say that race is a risk factor and not racism um and then also that comes up in um like kidney disease and uh, lung disease, as I mentioned, where um, race, when it's used as a risk factor, it literally is embedded into algorithms, which um, like there's these things called race correction factors that mean that, um, hmm, I'm trying to like think how to uh, summarize this, but basically these correction factors get applied to these calculations that are then used to determine the, the treatments that people get um, for different diseases and what they result in is um, black patients and, I mean, because I'm summarizing, it's hard to summarize, but like getting delayed care and worse care than their white counterparts for the same levels of disease. And maybe someone else can jump in, but I can like give another specific example, maybe with GFR or lung function, if, if that's helpful. Yeah, honestly, I think Noah, you basically said everything so eloquently because you wrote the freaking report. <laughs> um, I, and just, I think, I mean, again, this has been, um, Dorothy Roberts has really been, has produced so many TED Med um, scholarly articles, talks about this. And so she really is the foundation for a lot of how we understood it. And our role with the report is really to bridge these conversations um, that have been a lot of interdisciplinary activists that have been calling it out and medicine completely being silent and complicit. Um, and then realizing how can we actually apply a lot of what's already being said into our actual clinical practice because we see it every day. I just saw it in clinic today with a hypertension patient. Um, and it's just so embedded that um, it's so necessary for us to call it out. And I think I also wanted to to highlight how um, y'all yeah, we're students, um, we are f we're full-time medical and graduate students. So everyone's all like, everyone's like, how did you actually write the report? What's the process? And so we just wanted to elucidate, you know, like what that actually meant, and that actually meant um, us being like lanky medical students and being like, what would we want to have? What would we have wanted to have when we were medical students to help us understand this complex? process, this complex history and this complex application to our practice to really provide the best care for our patients, especially those who really face the brunt of chronic disease and stress. And so we created this report, honestly, for ourselves and for future learners and clinicians to really um, 
unpack in a step-by-step process. That's why it's like almost 70 pages because, and it took two years because that's really how long we had to digest it. And um, we know on that Twitter that this is for some reason like hella sexy right now. And just like so many people are, and it's just gaining so much momentum, which is awesome. But we also want to recognize like two years ago, like there was no conversation. And so we were really a group of, I'd say there were 10 of us in the classroom being like, how do we actually write a report of which we wanted to create? And then we came up with three main categories, which you'll see reflected in the report, which overviews again, how um, racism, not race, causes health disparities, and then going into the history of how deep this shit is, and then going into how it's still um, currently practiced in medicine today with patients every single day. And so with that progression, um, each of us, literally, we, um, we actually didn't even seek sponsorship or even think it would be submitted to a journal because we were just like, we just needed to write it. And so we did actually, honestly, this extra research. So it's honestly a third master's for us, like, <laughs> because basically we each took on a section. We took around a year, year and a half to really write it. And um, another year, year and a half, um, another year around to really edit it, find edit it, get interdisciplinary editors from Berkeley, UCSF, as well as critical race theorists from all over to really look at our work very closely. We also got peer editors to make sure that our language was um, actually accessible and understandable to people beyond the medical field. And um, after that, we were just like, you know what? Um, we really wanted to publish it, I think, either with our affiliated institutions of UCSF or Berkeley. But what had happened was when we proposed it to several people, especially in the very beginning, as we were beginning the writing process, they were like, oh, you know, this is cute. But like, what? Also, they were tone police. I don't understand that. That <laughs> is crazy to me. Like, yeah. what is, like, why would people not want to be a part of that? Like, I just, it baffles me to this day. No, and me too. And, oh, Bernie, and I have talked about it multiple times, or like, I would, I was, I was just like repeatedly so shocked at the reactions people would have because it was just so like, so bureaucratic and like hierarchical and like what Bernie said, people would literally be like, oh, this, the, the work you part or like, yeah, this is great work, but um, we can't actually sponsor it here or like, this is, this is good, like proud of you for doing it, but, but, but something, but something. Um, yeah. And so. And but the one part I wanted to say to what Bernie said earlier, so we did get that response as we were trying to write it and as we were bringing it up in the institutions. But once it was out there, like we got, first of all, people from the, like literally the groups that we had reached out to before, like then coming back and wanting to sponsor it. But also like we started to learn that people are having these conversations like across the country at various different medical schools and like doing different forms of activism around it in their own ways and like we didn't do it to get this like positive response but it has been so like humbling affirming motivating when people are like yeah like we're doing this work and like we're so glad we now have this resource that helps us um do it better that's a really broad summary but that's just been really beautiful um but it like as bernie said that especially given some of the response when we started it we definitely didn't expect that and also, 
So Bernie, me, and then Brenly and Maddie, these two other awesome students are the uh, four co-authors. And as Bernie mentioned, Aminta was one of our badass peer editors. So shout out. Hey, thank you. Um, I feel like I what add... I'm taking will oh. Sorry. Go for can it, I just go add for three things no, real quick? Um, I uh, really appreciate y'all like outlining the whole journey. And I think what I really want to stress is the importance of like, as a black med student, now having a place that I can point to to say, actually, I'm going to fact check you on this and that these race corrections that you're doing are actually incorrect. And here's like a cited source that I can provide to you. And just like how important this report has been just to like be on the other side of like having read it, having seen it be published so beautifully, have how y'all present it. This is such an important piece of literature that people have been like writing things like this for a long time. Like Rebecca Lee Crumpler, who was the first black um, uh, woman to graduate from medical school. Like she wrote a whole book on this back in 18... 65 or something and still there's medical stuff being cited like that horrible article that we just saw about poverty and race and culture and so to have those things constantly being put out but now to have this report that's generated by medical students and vetted by medical professionals is just like a beautiful thing so i just also really wanted to shout y'all out and say thank you well, and you've taken it to a whole new level and are like calling for racism to be called a public health crisis and also like doing related work in your the rally that you started i think you incorporated this in the demands I don't know. yeah um so yeah going off of that Noor, like all these amazing things that are coming from this report whether it be your activism um and like a little bit we'll talk about the institution i think as at the institute as we go on forward um but well, how did this report influence you now and the decisions that you're making especially the different responses that you got from the different um, groups of people, right? So some people at the very beginning were very doubtful or very like, well, maybe you shouldn't be so loud. And you all were loud and brave and courageous and still made this happen. Um, so how are you moving forward with this? Um, especially knowing that medicine is like pushing forward with this race-based medicine, like full, full, full. Um, you know, like you have these publications on um, like genes and how genes are informing the way that we're seeking therapies for different groups of people. And so um, how is this informing the work now at this, like, I think it's really extremely important point in medicine. All of this is making me think that student activism is the way and institutions really, I won't say that they don't do nothing, but mm, they're not to be trusted as much. I'm just saying like the student activism, like the heart, of students I think really says a lot because we really don't have much to lose right so we can really advocate and um, say things with our whole chest and fight for what we believe and what we want the future of medicine to be um, in a way that institutions I feel like lose some of that because there are just so many other stakeholders and bureaucracy and blah 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 so just wanted to commend y'all and all the other student activists around the world for um, for speaking up and for making a difference in this way. Yeah, and I think on the tent and, you know, really speaking to like the tangible outcomes of the report, because we were like, oh, are we going to release this out? And it's just going to be like a report that's like in the archives of like a dusty ass library. And um, we honestly really felt that until honestly May when we were like, 
uh, also co-launching the Institute because we realized that, again, as Noah had said, there are so many different initiatives that are happening around the country. And there's, and um, one of the ways that um, the institution and oppression happens is when we think that we're divided, when really we, um, when we're united and we realize how so much of our struggles and our work is interconnected, we are so much more powerful. And so we created the Institute as a way of which to really become a bridge for folks to um, connect and know that they are not alone in the work that they do um, as they advocate for their communities, their patients, and also allowing ourselves to know that our knowledge does not need the validation of a uppity like publication or uppity institution that we can publish it ourselves because especially our lived experiences and our witness to a lot of these injustices is enough. In fact, that's plenty. And um, that is worthy of being shared. And so it's been amazing because um, when we had the launch of the official report and um, the launch of the Institute in mid-May, we had like over a thousand RSVPs. That Facebook webinar was popping. It was like a party. I was like, has that ever happened to people? Like a Facebook webinar that's like a party? Like, I don't know. Um, but there were people all over the nation that were tuning in. And then um, after that, there, um, there was the series of like murders against many black people that really came up in the news that was coincidental with our activism. And that really um, created a spark in um, student-led activism as well as the application of our report as well as many other um, publications before us to actually removing the race correction factor um, in EGFR, which is um, used to calculate kidney function as well as dialysis treatment and all, and all of those. So all of those are, um, you know, actually being applied. And so we have institute, institutions all around the nation from like Virginia to Nebraska to UCSF to Mount Sinai to, I don't know, Tennessee, who we had never known before, but because of, um, the report because of my Twitter, because of the Institute, we are all coming together and actually so many people have built on the, the advocacy of um, Dr. Vanessa Grubbs, Dr. Monica Hahn, Stephen Richmond and Juliana Morris at um, San Francisco General and have used a lot of their advocacy that we highlighted in our launch events to actually remove the race correction factor in EGFR at different hospitals and institutions all around the nation and this has really been escalating um, all of June, and it's been wild. It's been so cool to see. Um, yeah, and I can talk about, like, I'm a, one of the, I guess, co-founders of the Institute. I say that as a question, but I'm saying it as a statement. <laughs> um, and I was invited to this work by, um, like, Bernie and Noor and Maddie and the other folks. And it's really interesting because that has also been a jumping point for myself and my activism in terms of, like, Edwin Lindo, who was part of the Institute, tweeted that, I keep talking about Twitter, but he tweeted that um, Seattle was going to have a demonstration in support of, um, like, healthcare for black lives. And I responded to his tweet being like, hey, so like, is someone going to do something like that in the Bay Area? And he was like, yeah, you. And I was like, oh, no, what have I done? Um, and so I kind of have this group of people that I've been working with through um, the UC Berkeley uh, Joint Medical Program, White Coats for Black Lives chapter. And we, we 
became our, an official chapter in February of this year, which is very timely considering all the things that Bernie was talking about in the state of the world right now. Um, and that was built on a legacy of a former organization called Stride. And so we have this group in the UC Berkeley JMP and we'd written a response to the um, murder of George Floyd, Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor. And within four days hosted a rally that over 600 people attended in Berkeley. And I'll be completely honest, I thought it was gonna be me and the 10 friends that I made come. And then there was 600 people there and I have a megaphone and I'm like, bruh, they let me talk? <laughs> Y'all don't even know. I'm about to go off. So like, you know, we read poetry, we read people's names to honor those lives that have been lost in their families. Um, we, and it's interesting because again, the, I kind of wanted to point out the thing I think that EVA said about institutions are very appreciative after it goes well. So before the night before the event, we get contacted by the UC, Ber by um, Berkeley police department. And we're like, what? It's 10 o'clock at night before a rally. Like, the our school, we didn't even ask for permission because we were like, they're not going to say yes. Um, so we didn't. But we know that like we have amazing faculty. Like, And I really want to shout out Leanna Lewis because she was there. She comes to everything. She supports me so much. So I think I have the freedom to feel safe in my activism because I know that she has my back through um, the Prime program. And also Dr. Mays and Asagi and all the fa fabulous faculty. But that work the at the rally started off... Um, uh, with Fatuma Render Connect, Camila Hurtado, uh, Mary Conjiro, and Haruna Aridomi, we uh, wrote a resolution to declare racism a public health emergency with a lot of information from this report and from state data around police violence. And we were able to propose that to Assemblymember David Chu. We proposed it to state senators and we're working with the different medical associations in the area to get racism declared a public health emergency. Um, and we're working with the California Medical Association right now to get that approved. So like this work not only is the baseline for how all medical students should be trained around race-based medicine for understanding how to effectively practice good medicine for their patients in the future. It also, like I said, just to bring it back to it's a citable source that I am constantly using in my personal life because people who come for me about this, I'm just like, oh, here's a beautifully formatted report. Thank you so much for your question. And they got somewhere to go and they don't got to be with me. And then in my thesis on anti-racism and medical education, I'm like, they pretty much did it for me. So I'm like, thanks so much, y'all. I can chill grad school so easy because they did my thesis work. So, you know, bet we're building together and that's something beautiful. That is amazing. Also, I just want to say that like, I love how Twitter really be connecting people, encouraging people like the fact that you messaged uh, Edwin and was like, hey, like, is this going to happen? He's like, you're going to make it happen. I feel like med Twitter is a really powerful thing. Like, ooh, you cannot take that for granted. It can be kind of a lot sometimes, but it can also be very in inspirational. And it can, like, make you think, like, oh, you know what? I have the capacity to do this, or people are doing this, or why aren't we having these conversations here? Um, so I think, one, that's really dope. And then two, I just want to say the White Coats for Black Lives chapter at Berkeley, they all have like, your Instagram, and you guys are posting all these great stuff that I start, that I share on the Woke Woke Docs um, podcast Instagram, because I think there's such great content there. So I don't know who's running that or whatever, but considering you guys just started in February, you're doing amazing work in letting the people know great stuff. So once again, just um, showing student activism and when, you know, the students' hearts are really in the right place, 
how much great information um, and just change can be made. So props to you and the other um, JMP Berkeley folks who are um, doing White Coats for Black Lives at Berkeley. I'm a part of it here at UCSF, but I just think it's really great that y'all just popped up and are doing really cool, important work. So go students, yay, we're so great. Um, and yeah, I really have to shout out, um, we have three fellows. We hired three black undergrad fellows at UC Berkeley because um, Camila and I took the lead and we wrote a grant that we were approved for $65,000 business dollars. Say to, what? Uh, right, money, making it rain, just kidding. We are managing them very responsibly. Um, and so we have three fellows that are kind of running everything. Um, shout out to Semhar, Teklu, um, Kanani Bowie, and Lula Desta. They Justa Kasai, um, those three students do more than anybody I know, and I'm just so proud of them. So I really just wanted to shout out also the like next wave that's coming up behind us to take all our spots. That is beautiful. Something on that too, talking about the next wave. Um, I actually, Maddie and I, Maddie's one of the other co-authors of the report. Today we gave a lecture. We were invited for a guest lecture. Okay, what, first of all, um, for, uh, a medical sociology class at UCSD and we basically presented on this report that we've been talking about and this work and at the end of it one student was like um, so we asked for like questions or feedback and she was like medicine can be so terrifying and just like hearing you talk about this work and this professor running this class like just makes it a little more welcoming and like thank you so much for doing that and it was like if that in itself isn't like a reason to do all this is because as Amita said, the next people are going to come and like take all our places and do it better because like they feel a little bit better about doing it because we did something like that's everything. And yeah, I want to say that. I think that's really important because, you know, medicine has a super problematic racist past. And we've all sort of joined this profession wanting to do right by our communities, wanting to do right by folks that have been marginalized and like like the most vulnerable people, right? But it's like, how can we help them when we're part of this system that is so corrupt, that is so morally corrupt? Um, well, like, you know what? We have to make the change from within. We have to change from the inside. So it's really dope seeing all y'all um, go in, like we're entering the field, but like actually do, take the steps that we need to make a difference, to make it better for the youth um, and for everybody, <laughs> because everyone's like health is important, right? So it's just real dope. I'm really happy. Congrats on presenting this to other folks, like being invited and sharing your knowledge and inspiring them. It's really cool. Yeah, and I think it just really highlights again, like, it don't like degrees don't matter no more like it's just like your lived experience what you witness what you see if it's wrong like that's valid like please like allow your like especially for folks out there who like oh um i'm just uh like take that out of your like talk and really know that like um your witness to injustice and your ability to imagine a better future of how things really can be is valuable. There are so many blind spots um, in medicine that I realized as I'm, as I was able to um, be on the wards, as I'm able to be in, in conversation with other 
um, doctors and healthcare professionals realizing that this has just been accepted. It's just what people do. And um, really knowing that um, as we are learners, as we are coming up in the field, we are the, con like, we are the consciousness of this field. We have a commitment to really bring these issues to light. And um, especially with, you know, I really do believe that our generation is building on the, um, the power and the, um, the inspiration of all those before us. And we're just not staying silent anymore because these are too deep. The hurt is so um, insidious and we, we see it a lot. I mean, especially with COVID, it's just, there's a lot of trauma that's been unaddressed, that's been silent and um, we can no longer um, wait for the degree. Like you don't have to wait to be a doctor or health healthcare professional to really change this field. Um, really knowing that um, all of our perspectives, all of our voices are powerful and we need everyone to, to value that and know that um, they have a place in changing how we see things. Yes, that made me think of this one tweet that I saw someone say that is, the revolution will not be verified. Like, you know how people really feel like you need to have like 50,000 followers to make a big change or whatever. And it's like, or like you need to wait for those type of leaders to make a revolution. And it's like, nah, you don't need to have, you don't have to have all that clout. You don't need to have a blue check mark. You don't need to have like X, Y, Z or be like this big powerful person. Like it can just be starting from within you and your little group of friends. Like we don't need to wait anymore. Like the time is now. Um, so yeah, I just want to say that the revolution will not be verified. Like it's coming right now from all of us here on the Zoom call and all of our listeners too. So that's that on that. No, I love that. And I, but I also want like one thing when both of you were talking about this is that like, all I agree. And that, like the, if anything, everything that we've talked about on this podcast today, like shows that, um, that the degrees don't matter. And like, at, no matter who you are, like your voice matters and like will make a difference. And like, I will say that people will tell you otherwise, right? And like the way the like institution is, will like does value the like degrees and whatever in certain like settings. And like, um, okay, where, where was I going with that though? Um, hmm. Oh yeah, like I, I think I just wanted to acknowledge that like it can be like scary because like you're actively told that and I think like a lot of us that have been like talking about um, like racism in medicine, maybe not again, like as all of you have talked about, like the conversation has sort of become to the forefront more in medicine, like in the past few months. Um, but like people have actively said that like talking about racism and like challenging the system, like can put you at risk for like not being like accepted into certain residencies or something like that. And it's like goes back to what I said at the beginning for like doing this work is like, if like we're going into it because we care about like our communities and about healing and like about justice, then if like once I know, or once we know about like how insidious racism is and how it is embedded in medicine, like how can, like how can you continue, how can any of us continue without like trying to challenge it? It just like has to happen. And like when, once you know that um, it like your voice matters and changing it and we've proven that it makes a difference and like, if we care about um, healing and justice in our communities, then like, I feel like we have to. 
Yeah. And I think like one thing that I would add to all the beautiful things that everyone is saying is that like that fear is very real. Like I'm one of two black students in four years of my program. And like, it is scary to be the one that is constantly speaking up to the point where there's been times where I know that I'm like, okay, my letter of recommendation might be in the line for this next scholarship if I say one more thing to this person. But also if this person speaks to me, I can't be held responsible for my actions. So, you know, taking steps back when needed because certain folks just ain't gonna listen and that's not my business. Um, And I think that like, it is a very real and valid fear, especially for black identified students to speak up in these spaces, especially when we're so few and far between in this racist medical system. And so I think also being strategic, like with activism about who talks, like maybe you have, you know, everything that you need to say and you send those talking points over to your white colleague and you say, you go get them because the somebody needs to. And like, fortunately we have white allies that will do that and we call like accomplices because we all have to be partners in this. Otherwise we're all gonna go down. Like, I think that's the thing about race-based medicine is that it negatively impacts all of us. And like, no matter like, and medicine kind of is holding on to like, as the last place where colorblindness is like the goal. Unfortunately, it seems that like, you know, I treat all my patients the same. And I'm like, I'm not asking you to treat all your patients the same. I'm asking you to provide quality care that is at the service of each patient's individual needs, which will not mean treating every patient exactly the same. Therefore, a lot of places and a lot of people I graduated from these medical institutions that I would not trust my family to take care of my family. Because if you don't see my color, you don't see me, right? And you don't understand my experiences. So, um, sorry, I'm reading the chat, but I just feel like- I, I feel like I need to just drop some knowledge on us. Like I, the way you just said that so beautifully, if you guys can see my face in my head, in my head, I said, and I, <laughs> when you said that, because I was like, oh, oh. You're a hundred percent right. That doesn't it means not everyone's gonna hit the exact same level, but like the way you said that was beautiful. When we post when we publish this, I'm gonna have to go back and listen to it again so I can spew that fire at somebody else. And thank you. I gotta give credit to uh, I was collaborating with some students, um, Jasmine Williams, Eric Smith, Mary Conjuro, and Fatuma Interconnect. We were um, working on a op-ed that uh, didn't end up coming through, but like just sharing our experiences around like what it's been like to be that one student in the classroom. And the professor puts up race as a risk factor and your whole stomach just falls out and you just know that they're just going to skip past it on the next slide. And then there's been a few times where my white classmates have been like, absolutely not. And they've come for people. And I'm like, thank you so much. And there's been other times where they've been completely silent being like, I was giving you room. And I'm like, fam, we all need to be speaking up on this and we all need to be doing the work. And so this report makes it very clear for everybody to have. Here's a talking point. Section three, you know, like go for it. You can do it. Be brave. Be bold. You know, and be about it. Otherwise, I will tell you. So that's a mean contribution to the podcast. <laughs> be about it. I love it. Be about it. Let them know, Mita. Anybody ever does me wrong, I'm gonna have you come for them. I'll, I'll be ready. Got my back. This has been such a lovely conversation. Are there any like last thoughts y'all have on the report, the Institute for Healing and Justice, anything you guys want our listeners to know about yourself or about abolishing biological race in medicine? Um, I will speak again. I think um, one thing that's been really interesting about doing this work is how much energy it actually gives me. 
Um, I'm trying to figure out how to have a career in medicine that feels happy and healthy, where I can live a full life, contribute to myself, but also to my patients in the future. And like doing this work makes me feel like I came to medicine for the right reasons and that I'm doing it the right way, if that makes sense. And that being said, I am um, just finished my first year. I have no idea what's coming. Uh, I've heard second year is going to punch me straight in the face and that's okay. You know, we'll do it. But knowing that like, not only am I connected to so many amazing people through this work that like, I now have a really strong community all throughout the States actually, because of work like this, I just really encourage people to like, there's a lot of fear around this and that fear is valid. And some of this work is really easy because some of this work is like what we want to do anyway. And sitting with that feeling of your stomach falling out of your, your body and then like writing the email, it can be really exhausting, but it does feel good. And it does feel like we're contributing to something and that there's like this wave coming all together and that we have this thing to cite. We have people to reach out to on Twitter, obviously and other places and um it does feel like things are changing and i know that there's going to be a reflex from the institution of like yes we're moving these things forward and then it's going to kind of shut things down for a while but our duty as students is to keep that pushing and making sure that we're recruiting students who are going to keep it moving forward yeah i love that thanks for like again reminding i mean ted that that fear is so valid and like when we were publishing the report or writing it, like, as I said, it, it, it did seem like something that just had to be done, but it definitely felt super, super vulnerable to put out there, like, especially given some of the feedback we received that like, oh, you're like telling this so harsh or like, this is gonna affect residency, et cetera. Like that's scary to hear. And as you mentioned, like even, even scarier for underrepresented minorities in medicine, specifically like black students and indigenous students. Um, and so, um, but then when we like at least in this case when we published it like the response was really so beautiful and like people were talking about um uh yeah people were talking about the ways that like it has influenced their work and like responded with love and like i i agree i 100 percent think that the fear is so valid but i also like if this is an example of like when you do work with love like you will be responded to with love as well because like that that is that's what it's about and like that's why i'm going into medicine that's why we're going into medicine and as anita said i've been like like as as like deep-seated some of this like stuff is in medicine like all of you are going into it i would love to have any of you as my doctors y'all are beautiful we've met amazing like mentors including some of the ones we mentioned already who are like amazing people that i would like love to be and so um yeah if there's like anything to say it would be that like your, as we said before, like your voice matters in this work. And also like when you just like, I don't know, radiate love and you will be loved as well. I don't know, that's, that's what I gotta say. Yes, and go forth and be great, y'all, for sure. I wanted to highlight, if you wanna read the report, uh, we got in a pretty PDF version. Um, we also have it on our website, instituteforhealingandjustice.org. We're having a gathering in August regarding student activism and changing EGFR in institutions. So stay updated on that. And follow uh, White Coast for Black Lives Berkeley on Facebook and Instagram, WC number four, BL underscore Berkeley on Instagram. Um, their shit's lit. So 
Um, with this, we hope that y'all are staying healthy, staying safe, um, and take care of yourselves, y'all. It's a hard time, um, but keep it pushing.